Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Uninformed Banker. My name's Gerald, and today I have a very special guest with us. His name is Zachary Carabell, and he's going to tell us about his new book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman, and the American Way of Power. So hello, Zach. How are you? Hello, hello. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into my... I have a lot of questions about the book, to be honest, but... You know, those a little bit about yourself ones are the more flummoxing questions <laughs> than who are we and... What's the nature of capitalism and what's the future of American power? You know, who am I is a much more confusing question to me. But I was an academic. I got a PhD, decided not to be an academic, spent a few years in New York as uh, an independent writer, wrote a few books, and then got drawn into the financial world, partly as a result of 9-11 and a firm that had been in the World Trade Center that day. Um, I was probably going to join some Silicon Alley startup that would have been worth a huge amount of money for a brief amount of time, uh, but instead ended up on in various roles in the financial world for almost 20 years, um, both at a mutual fund company called Fred Alger Management, which I uh, had a variety of senior roles in, and then a small hedge fund that I ran for a couple of years, and then a firm called InvestNet, which uh, is a publicly traded financial technology firm that serves independent financial advisors and also kept writing books and had a career on TV for a while on CNBC and Fox Business. And that brings us very quickly to the present. Okay. I wanted to get that. I wanted to talk about that because I had looked through your resume and it seemed very interesting. I saw the stuff about CNBC and but um, your new book is, I really like it because it's a subject I like, I like financial history. And I didn't, I didn't know about Brown, Brown Brothers Harriman until like, I don't know, a month ago, I've been searching for a job, applied to them. And then I heard about this book and started reading more up on them and went, oh, wow. So they've been around a, for a little bit. And mm -hmm. so can you tell us a little bit about the book? And then we'll get into my questions. So, so Brown Brothers Harriman uh, is probably the most important financial firm that many people haven't heard of. And when you really look into the history of them, which goes back to the very beginning of the 19th century and extends to the present, they are still a private partnership operating in multiple cities as they were in 1800 or 1810. And my joke when I've done interviews about this has been a bit like at every important juncture in American history and certainly American economic history, Brown Brothers is a bit like Zelig, right? They're the, the movie in the 1980s where this chameleon-like character ends up at every important moment in history. There's a Brown Brothers banker like in the second row back left looking like a banker and not wanting to be the story, but without whom there is no story. And they are the motive financial force behind a whole series of pivotal junctures in American history from the building of the first railroad to the funding of the first transatlantic shipping lines to the cotton trade and the, the, the ambivalence around the lucrativeness of the trade and the problem of slavery to the evolution of the monetary system, the evolution of paper money in the United States, and then the rise of the United States to global power in the 20th century where a series of Brown Brothers Harriman partners really were at the center of the U.S. government, uh, including Prescott Bush, who was the 
obviously the patriarch of the Bush family and the, the source of the Bush family wealth is a combination of Brown Brothers money and, and Harriman Railroad money. So they, they are woven into our past in a really intimate way, in a way that no other firm is in terms of the longevity and the complexity. It's funny you say that because part of what drew me to the book was I actually loved the part of history where like people don't know how much finance impacted like just getting electricity throughout the world. Like uh, JP Morgan really did that. But when you brought up Brown Brothers Airmen and I started reading the book, I'm like, oh, okay. So they were there, they were there, they were there. like looking through American history and how they shaped it without drawing too much attention in a good way. Right. And I really liked how they were basically in the background, pulling the strings, not taking too much risk, but also taking risk and helping America kind of move forward. And, and look, the, the challenge of writing about them is, in fact, that they were from the time of the patriarch of the firm. Alexander Brown is an Irish linen merchant who emigrates to Baltimore in 1800, fleeing the sectarian troubles of Ireland at the time, certainly not the first Irishman and definitely not the last. And his whole temperament and then the temperament of his sons and the temperament of their sons and the temperament of their sons. And look, this is all white men. This is mm -hmm. the history of white men. There are not a lot of women and there's certainly, and it's a history of white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men. Um, but they inculcated this culture and part of that culture, in addition to what you alluded to, and we can get into more about risk and heavy, heavy respect for the risks involved in deploying and, using money, you know, that money is creative, but can also be destructive was a, was a temperament of you're, you're not the story and we're not going to be the story. And unlike a lot of the people that we know better and the firms we know better, the Carnegie's and the Vanderbilt's and the Morgan's who I think were much more ego driven. And that's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just a fact. Uh, the Browns and, and the Harriman's to some degree, E.H. Harriman, the railroad baron, he was every bit of the I want to be the front and center. I want to be the, the motive force of history. Brown Brothers as a firm and a lot of its partners over centuries, really, that wasn't their thing. You know, they, they, they did not want to be in the headlines. Um, and frankly, I'm not sure they really wanted this book written in, in their current iteration because it, it made them nervous about, was this going to expose things in an unpleasant way or even potentially just draw attention? Um, because it, it still is a firm that would prefer not to be in the news and kind of treats every day that their name isn't in the papers as a good day. I agree with you, especially I looked into their like portfolio for when I was looking at the job to see what they were into. And a lot of their businesses, they're sound businesses and they have a lot of growth, but they're not the flashy yeah. like news drawing, you know, it's a veterinarian, cellular, cellular towers, et cetera not big flashy stuff that gets the news, but it's stuff that makes profit. It's responsible. You can see growth margins and that's like their history, like you were saying. But what I found really interesting was I kind of always wondered about how I knew at one point, like everyone was basically printing money or like uh, paper slips saying, this is good for this in, in America. And theirs was one of the only like basically currencies like their paper slips were one of the only currencies that facilitated trade because i had wondered that for a while because i'm like if like every bank was printing their own script at one point and the, 
I wondered how the 19th century in the United States was was there's no central bank. I mean, there there was the second bank of the United States, which is famously or infamously killed by Andrew Jackson in the what was called the bank war, where Andrew Jackson squares off against Nicholas Biddle, who was the the head of the second bank of the United States. And, and Jackson is determined not to recharter the bank. Uh, so it expires in 1836. And even when it was around, it, it, it wasn't like the printer of currency. You know, the United States and money in the 19th century is a, is a pretty confusing place where there is a federal role. And that, you know, I get into the book a little bit about the whole Hamiltonian contribution to creating a national financial system, which really is the lasting legacy of Hamilton. But for the most part, you know, it was a chaotic world where it came to how one transacted. And, and, and as you allude to, there were a lot of local banks that spring up, particularly in the frontier, to provide credit you know, to people who need to build a house or need to get supplies to, to homestead and, and do a farm, um, and often just wrote their own paper, right? So that this is good for something. It's not like it was redeemable in gold or there was a, there was a federal system that backed the full faith and credit. And so unlike Europe, and in fact, unlike most of the world, right, most of the world, well into the late 19th and early 20th centuries, wealth was illiquid. Wealth was land, wealth was people, wealth was metal, gold. Um, you know, making it into something, unlocking its potential was, was hard. And one of the things about the 19th century in the United States is it was easy. It was really easy to get paper that said this is worth something. The problem is it was worth something until it wasn't. <laughs> And that tended to also happen pretty quickly and pretty regularly. The 19th century in the United States is like a metronomic series of financial crises every 20 years, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1897, because the bank had X amount of money and Y amount of loans. And if you didn't get to the bank, if you didn't run to the bank in time, the bank ran out of money. And if it ran out of money, you had no money. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it was pretty elemental and pretty simple. And so you needed a few families like Brown Brothers that were trusted, that didn't promiscuously write promises, um, that could provide some sort of coherence to a pretty incoherent system. And Brown Brothers became you know, in this very wonky way for most people, the, the, the trusted issuer of a lot of paper, of credit, of letters that said, this is good for something. And people believed it because it was, they were always good for something. They, if Brown Brothers said, you can get paid this amount at this date, you had a better chance of that promise being honored than, than any other institution, including the government or including the state and these local banks. And, and you know that that didn't make for flashy headlines even then. You know, trust, honor, integrity are not front page news. They're, they're just not. Uh, that's but but they are definitely necessary for some sort of stable system. Yeah, you don't you don't see the headlines going, hey, this guy did what he was supposed to and followed through on his promise. You see right. headlines about they didn't. And right. Harriman, like it's so weird for me to think about. I mean, I grew up. You know, I was born in '95, so. I don't think about like a bank run. I'm, I don't think about the fact that, oh, my money won't be there if I don't run and go and get it. And the fact that they muddled through from escaping Ireland and then coming over here and setting up 
um, importing linen and from there going from Baltimore to New York and building this and kind of being the guardians at the gate is really interesting to me. And the fact that they're still around, I mean, it shows that they didn't get swept up in the mania of the, uh, of the financial crisis. And from what I've, from what I've read, because like I said, I haven't gotten through the entire book yet. It seems like they don't go for a lot of groupthink. It's not like they don't go into the manias. If they do do it, if they do do something that's part of a mania, it was kind of at the beginning and then they stop. And that is, that's smart. It's, they don't go for more. They go for, you know what, we've made a profit. We're going to preserve our capital, take our profit and move on to something different. And and part of that's their structure, right? And to be fair, that was the structure of most financial institutions until the 1970s. They're a private partnership. And in a private partnership, the money you deploy uh, is first and foremost your, your own money and that of your partners. And so every deal you do, every investment you make has to be framed by the calculus of how much am I personally willing to lose? Um, now, that was true for a lot of firms that, that made a lot of crappy decisions in the 19th century. So the 19th century is littered with similar kinds of merchant family firms to Brown Brothers that make the wrong choices or get greedy or forget about risk, right, and go under. And we, we, we don't know of them because they didn't survive. And there's a little bit of luck and contingency. There was a moment in 1837 where no matter how well run Brown Brothers was between its operations in Liverpool and in New York, and they're the largest cotton merchant in the United States at that time, underwriting a lot of cotton trade as well as shipping some of their own cotton or some of them, meaning shipping some cotton they had purchased and, the, and then were selling in Liverpool. Um, and it could probably gone either way. You know, they survived because of a, of a small loan from the Bank of England, which was a little bit of a bailout, but not a big one. But they had to think about every deal in those terms. And so did JP Morgan and so did Carney and so these others, it was their money. And, and, but more often than not, when you were driven by how much upside I can get, uh, you ended up taking on a lot of risk and that risk often at one point or another sunk you. As opposed to Brown Brothers, which thought, look, every day we go to bed, we had better be prepared for the world to change tomorrow badly. You know, make, make sure your books are balanced. Make sure you are aware of uh, of your exposure. You know, really sort of basic cliche stuff that's kind of a little luxury, but it's how they lived. And in the 20th century, into the late 20th century, when all these financial firms that had survived, many of them went public. And that changes the risk-reward ratio because, you know, if you do a deal and you're like, I can make a million dollars if I put in a million dollars, and your partnership, you're also aware of the fact that you can personally lose a million dollars. In a private equity firm today, in a publicly traded firm, which is deploying other people's capital primarily, um, you might make $10 million personally. I mean, this is, I'm talking the 1% the of the 1%, but you're never going to lose $10 million personally, or almost never. Um, and if that's your calculus, right, I can make a lot, but I'm not going to lose my home, then it's a much more structural incentive to risk taking. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you don't bear the risks of the, of the risks, then, you know, yeah. why not bet the house? Yeah, why not roll the dice? That's I've seen that a lot in uh, some companies that we've done business with and they'll do like 80 deals or something like that. And like 
maybe a couple of them will work out. And yeah, they work out big, but all those other ones chipped away at that profit where if they had been a little bit more, I guess, risk averse, they would have gone, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to only do these and focus on these. Right. Done small, done a smaller amount of deals, really focused in on them. They would have still made, they would have made actually more because that wouldn't have been chipping into the profit they made, but it's not their money. So it doesn't really matter. They still made the money. And and look, I'm I'm careful in the book to say, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want a world composed only of Brown Brothers sensibility, yeah. right? You don't want a world where risk management and awareness of downside as as a primary governing factor and where you know, uh, kind of a bounded capitalism. You don't want only that, right? Mm-hmm. And the joke, I mean, not a joke. The reality is, you know, let's say Elon, Elon Musk had walked into Brown Brothers in 2002 for, for deal capital. I mean, Brown Brothers doesn't even really do this now, but let's say that that he had. Um, it's almost inconceivable to think that that he would have been the kind of person they would have supported. And look, you may hate Elon Musk, you may love Elon Musk, but you certainly probably believe, like with Steve Jobs and others, that you, you want a certain amount of that in a dynamic system. Um, and and so you wouldn't want a world composed only of Brown Brothers, because it would be a much less dynamic capitalism. On the flip side, what I think we have today uh, is a world composed of too many people trying to become Elon uh, and not enough people trying to be Brown brothers. Mm-hmm. So it's more about the balance and the ratio than it is about all of one or all of the other. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with that. You do need kind of the risk takers to advance innovation, you know, bet on the Elon Musk of the world so that now, I mean, I never thought in my life that I would see privatized space flight ever that never even entered into my mind that, Oh yeah, no, people will have their own rockets and they'll take them right. out for fun. But, um, Although to be fair, it's not as privatized mm-hmm. as it looks, right? I mean, yeah. Jimmy Musk um, with SpaceX, what, what they really are is an outsourced contractor for NASA. <laughs> like mm-hmm. NASA got both defunded and really inefficient and really bureaucratic and, and, and the, opposite, the opposite of innovative and lean. So this is obviously a whole other discussion. I'm just saying. No, I, I actually know what you're talking about. I mean, their rocket that was supposed to be ready is not ready right now and it's still being worked on. Right. And that's a big issue that we we but, don't have. They, to... they got, they got. I mean, particularly SpaceX, they got a lot of government funding, yeah. um, like more than Virgin and, and more than and more than Bezos. Yeah, he's um, angry about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, hey. But getting back to Brown Brothers, they seem. It seems like they've been kind of the guardians at the gate because you do need. You can't have it all one way, and you can't have it all the other way. They seem to have been solid, and then. They merged with Harriman, correct? Mm-hmm. And, in 1930. Yeah. That seemed like you put in the book, like a match made in heaven. You needed the reputation of Brown Brothers and the wealth of Harriman. Right. And Harriman's, Averill Harriman's fortune uh, comes from his father, E.H. Harriman, who was one of the most important railroad barons from about late 1890s till his death in 1907, where he went up against J.P. Morgan and actually is the reason for the one major trust-busting action of Teddy Roosevelt. You know, we remember the progressive era as the time when the U.S. government starts curtailing or taking on the power of these large corporate conglomerates. And people look back wistfully to this period today when they think about the power of the tech monopolies. 
what what's surprising when you really look at the history is there's only one big antitrust case that Teddy Roosevelt actually uh, engages in and wins, and it's against the Northern Securities Trust, which was this combination of E.H. Harriman's railroad holdings with J.P. Morgan and and James Hill's railroad holdings, um, which didn't make Harriman any less wealthy. It just made that that particular conglomerate broken up. Um, and then he, he dies young and gives his money to his sons and Averill Harriman and all these Brown brothers, uh, next generation sons were all at Yale in the, in the 19-teens. And a whole bunch of them were brought into Skull and Bones, which is one of the reasons why Brown Brothers, when it was known more in the 70s and, and like 60s and 70s, was often exhibit A of, oh, there's this small cabal of intermarried, interlinked, East Coast elites pulling the strings, making decisions, leading us into Vietnam, uh, enriching themselves and and destroying the rest. Uh, that was the negative, you know, kind of evil cabal image of Brown Brothers. And it stems from the fact that there are all these young men who were at college at the same time, all at Yale. A lot of them had gone to Groton, as did all the Roosevelts. Uh, and all, many of whom were in Skull and Bones, one of the secret senior societies at Yale. And that allows these two firms, Harriman had started his own sort of family office firm, called it Harriman and Co. But it really was, it's what we would today call it like a small venture firm or private equity firm or family yeah, investment yeah. firm. Uh, so they had a lot of money, didn't do very well, didn't do incredibly badly, but were pretty much a mediocre investment firm, but flush. Mm -hmm. And Brown Brothers, which was a really good investment firm, but had made some questionable deals in 1928, 1929, questionable because of what happens in 29. Like they'd finally decide to invest a bit in Argentina. Everybody is always investing at the wrong time in Argentina. Maybe there is no right time to invest in Argentina, but they were, you know, yet another version of that. Uh, and then they, they combined forces because they all knew each other. You know, this wasn't like scratching your head trying to find a solution to a problem it was a very obvious solution to a very obvious problem and a very easy one it was you know probably one of the easiest mergers in history because they all you know they all knew each other their their big debate was like what are we going to call the new firm we're going to call it harriman brown brothers or brown brothers harriman yeah. and you know they call it brown brothers <laughs> harriman that was about that was about the extent of 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 the deal break okay so switching to another subject how do you decide and kind of like pick Brown Brothers Harriman. Like you said, they were kind of pulling the strings in the background and then the most interesting firm that no one knows about. But when you first started this book, how'd you go, all right, I'm going to pick that. There are, two, there are two aspects of it. One, I knew about Brown Brothers because my PhD had been in American history and foreign policy, and I had written about the evolution of American foreign policy in post-World War II, which was also my first book. Um, and there were three Brown Brothers partners at the time who really were central in government. One I alluded to before was Prescott Bush, who became a senator from Connecticut from 1952 to 1960. Um, and then, you know, therefore his name is more famous because his son and his grandson both become president. Uh, Averill Harriman, who had multiple roles in, in, in the government, starting with the Roosevelt administration in the New Deal, then as the wartime U.S. ambassador to Moscow, who helped sponsor George Kennan and the the evolution of the Cold War belief that the communist Russia was an existential threat to the United States. 
He then was Secretary of Commerce. He became the administrator of Marshall Plan Aid in Europe. Then he becomes governor of New York. Then he becomes Assistant Secretary of State for Far East Affairs and sort of central to the decision to get more involved in Vietnam under Kennedy and then Johnson. And then a man named Robert Lovett, who's largely forgotten, but was one of the most important national security officials from about 1940 to 1950. He was uh, the architect of the modern Air Force and the War Department during World War II. He'd been a aerial aviator in World War One, um, also part of the Brown family, marries into it. His father had run E.H. Harriman's uh, Union Pacific Railroad Empire. Then he becomes number two to George Marshall at the State Department, succeeds Dean Acheson as Undersecretary of State, and in that role helps pass the World Trade Organization, I mean the GATT, which was the precursor of the WTO. Uh, the national security state. Then he becomes undersecretary of defense at the beginning of the Korean War and then secretary of defense for the last two years. So I knew about that influence. Um, but I also wanted to write about the crucial role of money in America, which I think is a story that's somehow underplayed, um, either because it's too wonky or, you know, we, we tend to tell the story through lionized individuals, right? Big biography of J.P. Morgan or big biography of Vanderbilt or... Mm-hmm. Um, but the role of money, you know, and particularly paper money and paper promises. So I wanted to write about how money made the world, made American power in the 19th century, and then how the men, and again, they were all men, how the men who made the money of the 19th century constructed the global international system of the 20th century. And then like, what happened? You know, what, what, what was the arc? And Brown Brothers is literally the perfect armature for that arc. There's no other firm that's been around 220 years. There's no other firm that's been as central. And there's no other firm that you could tell that story in quite that way. Um, and certainly that had never been told. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, I thank you for writing it. So what was one of your biggest surprises when you were doing this research and writing this? I think I, you know, when I initially did it, I thought that the 19th century part would be like a third of the book. That I would, I would, I would look at the 19th century uh, because the Brown family, right, as this kind of group of, of people steeped in Presbyterian rectitude um, and risk adverse and, and, and not very colorful and not really in, in the news in, in most cases, I didn't, I didn't know how I would make that interesting. I didn't even know if it was that interesting. And I knew the 20th century part that I just talked about was really important. But as it turned out, the 19th century, for me, ended up being far more uh, variegated and dynamic and, and great stories about how Brown Brothers and Alexander Brown in 1828 fund the first passenger and steam railroad in the world, not just in the United States, uh, in underwriting the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's construction from 1828 on. I didn't know they'd been so central to the cotton trade in the way that they were and all of the problems and moral complicities of slavery and how you tell that story of how Northern businessmen both, you know, were complicit in slavery and then eventually could not bear the moral contradictions of that. And how they funded the first transatlantic shipping line, steam shipping line that almost became what the Cunard line eventually becomes and how they, you know, underwrote um, this whole paper promise, promissory system that, that made trade possible and made trade between dollars and English pounds at a time when there was no established foreign exchange system. 
and how they were part of the whole paper money evolution of America. I think I think the role of paper money in American power is also underrated. You know that we were we've always been a very liquid place. It's always been easier to get money and lose money and get money and lose money in the United States than in most parts of the world historically. So I ended up writing a lot more about the 19th century than I thought I would. Okay. So did you get any help from Brown Brothers Harriman in this research or because you said they were kind of like a little iffy? I I ultimately did, but I never really needed to. So in in 1968, um, Brown Brothers, so Brown Brothers identifies its founding as 1818, which is somewhat of an invented date. So Alexander Brown comes Mm -hmm. from Belfast to Baltimore in 1800, has four sons. He sends his older son, William, to Liverpool to become the head of the Brown Brothers house in Liverpool, which ultimately becomes a very important part of English financial history with a firm called Brown Shipley. It provides several of the governors of the Bank of England. The governor of the Bank of England during the Great Depression, Montague Norman, was a Brown Shipley, Brown Brothers partner. Um, his father-in-law was Mark Collette, who was the governor, was the governor of the Bank of England. So you could have like, wrote, written your own book about how important they are to British financial history, but I need to write one book, not four. And um, so they kind of created a composite date. 1818, they, they established an office in Philadelphia and it, it's called Brown Brothers. The first time I think the word Brown Brothers as opposed to Alexander Brown and Sons, or which also becomes a very important financial firm in Baltimore, separate from Brown Brothers, but linked until the 20th century. So. They they say they're established in 1818. I actually think that's a, a bogus date, mm-hmm. um, which I say in the book. But they commissioned a corporate history and took this man five years to write it. And he assembled all of the papers of Brown Brothers, 120, 30 boxes, photographs, letters, correspondences, many of them personal correspondences between the family and family members. And those were all eventually deposited at the New York Historical Society on uh, 77th and Central Park West and are open to the public. I happen to live on 72nd Street and Columbus. So all I had to do was wake up in the morning and go five blocks, get oh. some coffee, and sit in an archive. And and Brown Brothers had no had no role in that. Um, so even if they had hated me and hated the book, which they didn't and don't, uh, it, I, I didn't need that buy-in. Now, I suppose there's some conspiracy theorist out there going, yeah, yeah, you saw the archives they wanted you to see. Yeah, well, there's always going to be that person, you know, hidden in the bowels of the corporate world if they didn't burn them or destroy them is is the proof that, you know, Prescott Bush was secretly funding um, uh, Adolf Hitler's industrial machine. That's one of the things that's that swirls around Brown Brothers. You know, they they did have business dealings with um, IG Farben and, and Thyssen and Krupps because anybody who had any dealings with Germany in the early 1930s had dealings with those conglomerates. They did in fact, ultimately support some Nazi atrocities. Um, but there's a difference between being involved with German business prior to World War II and being complicit in the Holocaust. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe there are dark secrets that I, I was blinded to, but I don't think so. I, I mean, I haven't gotten to that part, so the fact that you brought up the conspiracy theories about them, kind of surprising. I didn't know really people were thinking that way, but I personally just, it's out of my realm of possibility because there is, you know, Germany was a major player. You had it, you had to do some business over there. I mean, they were wrecked after world war one, but there was still business to be had over there. And 
what are you going to do? So there was conspiracy theories. Can you get into yeah, this? Particularly, that? This got particularly prominent when, you know, the first Bush got elected president and then the second Bush got elected president to look at the origins of the Bush family fortune. And one of the things that is used is Prescott Bush was one of the point persons for Brown brothers in whatever dealings they had had with Germany. Okay. Um, and they dealings with, you know, 25 countries around the world. They were an international, they helped farm. fund the Swiss, <laughs> sorry, they helped fund this Sweden's national bank. I mean, it, it, you can look laser like on one element mm -hmm. of it and then tell tales. Um, but it's not like they were particularly involved in Germany. More they were also places. involved in France and Italy and Great Britain and Argentina. And, you know, one of the chapters in the book is how the United States invades and occupies Nicaragua in 1912, largely to help Brown Brothers uh, secure its financial interests in the country, which, you know, I don't think is one of the prouder chapters of our history or its history, although we were doing it in Honduras and we were doing it in the Dominican Republic and in Cuba as well. But Brown Brothers was really central to how and why um, the United States ends up having such a presence in Nicaragua uh, throughout much of the 19th, throughout much of the 20th century. Um, so even without conspiracy theories, I mean, there's, there's plenty there to sink your teeth into. Mm -hmm. So you personally, because it seems like a lot of the book is broken up into like, you'll tell this, I guess, kind of mini story about how this person led them through this, or they did this and that. What was your favorite, I guess, like miniature part of the book? Like, I think bringing out, you know, the the role of Robert Lovett in kind of, so Dean Acheson, for those who remember, was Secretary of State under Truman, um, had been under Secretary of State, then, then Secretary of State after George Marshall, and writes a memoir years later called Present at the Creation as a way of like, it is extraordinary that in the five years after the end of World War II, all of the institutions that still essentially governed the global international system were created. So that it's the United Nations and all of its different agencies. It's uh, GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which becomes the World Trade Organization. It's the Pentagon, right? There was no unified defense department prior to 1947. It's the National Security Council at the White House, the Central Intelligence Agency. You know, a lot of the sort of building blocks of our of our global security and financial system are are set up in a very, very short amount of time uh, after World War II, largely in response to World War II and in response to Soviet Russia. And so President the Creation was saying that there was a group of people who sort of were the architects of this system. And Lovett, who was not nearly as... Um, front and center. He was on the cover of Time magazine several times, uh, although probably helped by the fact that Harriman and Brown Brothers supported Henry Luce early on and that Luce had also been at Yale and Luce had also been a member of Skull and Bones. I mean, there was a, definitely a, this was a very tight circle and a very closed club. Um, and I do not have any romanticism for how closed that club is because if you didn't have a seat at the table, you, you didn't have a seat at the table. And, but Lovett's role has been kind of underplayed. And he was, a, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he was um, a hypochondriac. He was uh, an early flyboy. There was a Yale, early Yale uh, aerial, uh, aerial unit 
uh, all rich kids because you had to have a lot of money to be an aviator in 1917. But they all went to France, commissioned in, in the early Air Force. One of them died. And lifelong passion for the logistics. I mean, Air, the Air Force, uh, almost above any other part of the military, except maybe submariners, is you know, it's a deeply kind of uh, process-oriented part of it. It's not, it's not how you fight. It's can you get the planes built and the parts and the maintenance. And it's, it's a very complicated logistic process. And Lovett was brilliant at that part of it and helped create the modern Air Force. So the role of Lovett behind the scenes. And then John F. Kennedy wants Lovett to be either Secretary of Defense or Secretary of Treasury in 1960. And Lovett's like, I'm, you know, my body can't manage it. I mean, Lovett ends up dying in the mid-1980s, in his mid-90s. So he's a hypochondriac for like 40 years. Um, uh, but Lovett, it, it suggests Douglas Dillon, who becomes Secretary of Treasury. He suggests Robert McNamara, who becomes the def- you know, Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and then Johnson and responsible for a lot of the problems of Vietnam. So, the, you know, he was such a underwritten, underexamined part of American power for that 20 year period. Um, and I think being able to bring him a bit more to life was I almost thought about maybe maybe I should write a biography of him, but I sort of feel I've written enough about him. Thank you for answering these questions. Is there any point you want to talk about the book that I haven't touched on? I just think the role of culture in shaping a firm uh, and and the choice that all firms have about what culture they are going to inculcate. And that the thing about Brown Brothers I, I found most intriguing and important for our world today is that from a very early period, its partners, both as a firm and as individuals in society, and then to their children, imbued an ethos of if you've got great power and are born to great fortune, uh, you have a responsibility to serve the public good. You know, th- these were not elites who were born on third base and thought they had hit a triple. They knew they were born on third base. And, and their ethos was, if you have that position of privilege, what are your responsibilities to make sure that the world around you is stable and thriving? And so whether that was underwriting the B&O Railroad in 1828, which made them no money and was done because Alexander Brown had come to love his adopted city and wanted to make sure it had a competitive position to New York and uh, Philadelphia. So they pay for a railroad as a public works project, not as a speculative moonshot investment. It was a moonshot, but not not for those reasons. And the way they go into government and, and part of the framing of that global system was and the Marshall Plan, you know, Europe had to thrive in order for capitalism to thrive and capitalism had to thrive in order for them to thrive. That there was, that private gain is bounded by public good mm-hmm. uh, and that you have both a self-interest, a selfish self-interest in being selfless. Mm-hmm. That you want to make sure the commons thrives so that you can thrive. And I think that's the most important aspect of the book or one of the most important aspects for our world today, that these were elites who believed in the public good because they understood that they couldn't endlessly pursue private gain if the world around them wasn't thriving. Mm-hmm. And I'll leave with like one, you know, truly surprising, and I, I don't have a great answer for it, but in this very hierarchical elitist world that they constructed in the 1950s, um, the the average gap between a, an employee at a firm and the CEO of a firm was like 30 to one. 
and today it's 200 to 300 to one. Now, maybe there's nothing wrong with, you know, either ratio, but it's interesting that in our world where we speak in kind of anti-elite, more egalitarian terms, we've created a much less egalitarian world than these self-conscious, very exclusionary elites did uh, in a world where they believed that their responsibility was to serve everyone uh, and that it wouldn't have occurred to them to get sort of obscenely rich uh, because that would have been out of balance with the public good. And, and I just think that's something to really think about and look at and conceive of and think about as we construct whatever systems we're about to construct because we're always in the process of building our future, right? And mm -hmm. and it's decisions we make in the present that create that future. And, you know, nothing is, is written and nothing's a given. So I think they point to a pathway of a more um, balanced capitalism. I talked about that earlier in terms of the ratio of risk versus prudence in a financial system. And, and that, I think, is a lot of the lessons of the firm. I, I really like that point. And it kind of, it sparked a few things in my memory of there was a point in American history where basically CEOs and heads of companies and like leaders in finance, they saw their employees, like they were the shepherds and they had to take care of their employees a lot more as right. the, that was the mood back then. And then you had investment bankers come in and that's a right. whole different thing. I think a lot of that has been lost and it's nice to know that they kind of still keep with that and that enough is enough and you have to, like you said, you can't have this huge gap because it doesn't end well for them. Like you said, the self selfish selflessness of it. And I think that's a really good point. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you for taking the time to do this. And I want to encourage everyone to go out and get Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman in the American Way of Power. I've already bought it. It's on its way. And I'm excited to read it. Thank you for being on. Thank you for having the conversation. All right. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye.